Let me, uh, let me just start to, to dig in. We are in our third sermon, third box hedge sermon. And these sermons aren't like anything else. I'm just going to be transparent in, the, in my introductory remarks. These sermons aren't like any other sermon I've ever preached. I've never preached a sermon like this. I've never, I've never gone through and, uh, and said, okay, so four minutes from, from the call. That's not, that's not too bad. Maybe we'll set a record. Maybe we'll be like, and today it was only two minutes and 30 seconds. Um, but I've never preached a sermon series like this. It's, it's really interesting. I've become more comfortable with the idea that in front of this sermon, this entire sermon series, so far every Sunday, I've just been so nervous. I'm not nervous when I come to preach the word. I'm not nervous when, I, when I'm preaching sermon series. But this sermon series, I'm so nervous. And, uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate the support. And, and I was talking to a longtime friend of mine, and, and he was encouraging me, and I told him, I'm like, I feel like I'm a wreck on the Sundays of this sermon series. Like, what is going on? And, and he's also been in ministry for a long time, and, and he said, Rob, you're not preaching normal sermons. He's like, normally you just exegete scripture and, and, and take a good, a good look at what scripture's saying and how it applies to us and our topics. And, and, and it is what it is. And you just let it, let it preach and let the Holy Spirit do his work. And then, and then this sermon series is different because it's about leaves. <laughs> Box hedges. It's a vision. It's, it's something that that God has been instilling in my heart, and, and God did some work in this conversation with my friend, that God has been instilling in, instilling in my heart since I was 18 years old. I had no idea. I had no idea that this vision goes all the way back to being 18 years old, but at 18 years old, I, I went into a pastor's office, and this isn't in my notes, so, you know, it's free. I went into a pastor's office, and I was like, God's calling me to, to ministry. He's calling me to do something. And the pastor was like, okay, so you're going to start running games at a junior high group. And I was like, that is not ministry. That is, that is such a waste of time. Why would I run games at a youth group? I want to do ministry. And the pastor was like, well, it is ministry and you need to do it. And so I became the games coordinator for a youth group of about 100 kids and man, I made them do the stupidest, dumbest things you've ever think of. And they, they, I remember one of the worst ones, and I realized, oh, there's a line. I should probably not cross that line. I, I, I filled these cake bowls with mustard. I bought a lot of mustard. And then I got gummy worms, and I dropped the gummy worms into the mustard. And there were three cake bowls of mustard, and then there was like, 50 gummy worms. And then I had three poor suckers from the youth group that were in between 11 and 13 years old, and I had them come up to the front, and, and I said, okay, so you can't use your hands, but you have to get as many gummy worms out of the mustard as you can, and it's a race. And because they're 11 years old and 12 years old, they're just like, okay, I'll do it. And I'm like, and, and they're doing it, and, then, and they put their face in the mustard, and, and, they, and they get a gummy worm, and they're like, it burns this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Keep going. <laughs> Don't open your eyes, sucker. 
And so they just keep on trying to get these gummy worms out of and, and they're like, I don't like doing this anymore. Kids like crying, clear streaks on their cheek through the yellow. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Keep going. Kids are yelling, go, 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 go. Nobody cares who wins, really. They just want to see the kids smash their own faces into mustard. Like, this is nuts. Shirts are getting wrecked. Parents are sending emails even. Like, it was bad. It's not ministry, I'm telling you. But it was ministry. And God used that, and he, he then said, okay, so you're, you're not going to do that as much anymore, but I want you to start a community youth group. And I started a community youth group in Brayfield Manor, and this is where it gets interesting to me. This is why this vision is actually more than just promised church. This is actually a lot of reflection to me and why I'm nervous. Because in Brayfield Manor, I started a youth group, and, and, and we had a lot of kids coming, and we'd play ultimate dodgeball. And the idea of ultimate dodgeball is get a ball and whip it as hard as you can at somebody's head. I mean, the rules were don't hit the head, but you know everybody's head hunting. And, and you whip the dodgeball as hard as you can at somebody's head, then they have to sit down until a ball comes close to them, and they, from sitting, whip the dodgeball at someone else's head, and they fall over. And you're like, well, <laughs> sometimes we had people, Bennett, sometimes we had people that were, you know, a little stronger than the other ones, and they would just, like, throw a ball, and, like, thunk, kid actually just falls, and you're just like, you're like a bowling pin. This isn't ministry, but it was. It was healthy community. It was experiencing some of the joy. It was on the walk home with all of these youth listening to their life stories and saying, I know a God who can help you. And that ministry started growing in such a way that all of a sudden God gave me a vision of doing seven of them all over town. Oh, that sounds familiar. So we started new youth ministries called Refuge or Mercy Street. We use both titles. And I partnered with the town, and we started one in, in Newmarket at Maple Leaf Public School, and it ran with the help of the Salvation Army and some town people, and we set up another youth program that was a ministry. And we went to St. Nicholas Catholic School in, in Newmarket, and we, we started another one. And we went to Cedarview Community Church and, and aimed at the, at the subdivision right beside them and, and started a fourth one. And these little youth groups started to grow. They started to expand, each one having 30 to 60 youth in all over Newmarket. Small, little communities growing in health. And I see that I see that we get this idea, and God was planting this idea early on in my life. And now here I am standing in front of you saying, here's a church that God's planting a vision that says every community experiencing God. Every community experiencing God. This isn't just about us here in the four walls of this church. Yes, I love this community. I love break. I love that it took four minutes and 30 seconds to call everybody back from break. Like, I love the sense of community and health that we have, but every community needs to experience God. I love that when we gather on a Sunday morning here, we're experiencing God. We're praying for healing. We're having faith, believing that God is involved in our life and, and restoring 
bringing relationships and bringing forgiveness and bringing hope and bringing healing. I love that God is at work. Is anybody else with me on that? And so, so this is too good to hold for ourselves, too good to just keep it in. And it's something that we have to say every community experiencing God. It's a box hedge vision. It's a vision that says we will shape our community culture. You know, if God had that refuge group continue and, and God called me into, into pastoring and I left Newmarket, I went to Stouffville and, and refuge actually did continue. Mercy Street did continue under the Salvation Army for a whole bunch of years. And we have this, <laughs> yes, there was tackled duck, duck, goose. Thank you very much for that slack comment. <laughs> we have this experience, and if that had continued ongoing, that would have shaped and did shape a lot of youth culture in Newmarket. And so now we have the experience and we have the pleasure of shaping our culture here in Bradford. I welcome questions um, and comments in, in Slack right now. I really look forward to, I really look forward to that because um, we want to, we want to be involved. We want you to be involved in the conversation. So please, please, please have, have this conversation. Um, I, I love how some people are already just reflecting on what happened at youth group. Like we played European handball with ground beef. Raw ground beef. Yep. Um, Another youth pastor, this wasn't me, put ginger ale and chocolate bars in a toilet. Yeah, that's disgusting. <laughs> um, ew. <laughs> it shapes, it does shape the lives of the leaders as well. Thank you for that comment. It shapes the lives of the leaders who are blessed to be a part of it, uh, even if the leaders were duct taped to the walls. There's a really good point there, and I'm actually going to expand that. Then I'm going to get into the message today because, because we want to understand what it is to be healthy. But what I discovered in my 18 years in youth ministry was I discovered that the people who are blessed the most, yeah, the youth get blessed and their lives get changed, but the people who get blessed the most are the leaders. The people who are stepping into positions of leadership saying, God, how can you use me? And God uses us and shapes us and grows us and challenges us. And it's as we step into, as we volunteer in these roles, God is doing something. Okay, I've taken all the extra time. We're not getting it here on time. Praise Jesus. Let's go. We need to be a healthy church. It's a box edge church. We need to plant more churches, and it's going to mirror the values of this church. We're going to be doing them in schools all over town. I'm supposed to only talk about one, but whatever. This is what we're doing. We're going to keep this community together because this is the template for other communities, but it begs a really important question. How does a church know when it's time to set up another one? How do we know when it's time to go? Like, are we really ready? Someone this week looked at me, and they were like, Rob, I think you're a little bit out of your mind because you look, at the, you look at the sanctuary here and it's a construction zone and you're saying, yeah, 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 we're going to go plant a church. Well, there's a couple of re remarks to that. One, a church is never actually ready, but it can be healthy. And we have to look at what health is. We have to look at what is healthy, what happens when, when, we, when we are healthy and how are we able to do that. So over these Sundays, we're, we're looking at the three metrics. Last week, the metric was community, and, and I love our community. And this week is a little bit more challenging to talk about because, um, because the metric that we're looking at is finances. And, uh, and, and 
it's just so important that we understand the the finances that we're looking at and saying, hey, this is this is something that we need to that we need to be doing. Someone just uh, Michaela, uh, I'll name her because she's naming her husband. She she said Devin is a worship pastor today because of his youth, his work in uh, his work as as a youth leader. And and so, to be honest, I just needed to open up a different document here. One moment. So we're looking at, at finances, and today it's why we give and what's at the heart of our giving. The message isn't about giving more. The message is not about giving more. This message is about actually a motivation for giving. And I've been around churches long enough, and I've heard enough manipulative wrong things said about giving that I need to clarify why we're giving and what that's about. Um, And to do that, we're going to look into Scripture uh, in different ways. We're going to look at at what's going on. But there's also an objective measure about what makes us healthy financial. It's a measure that we're going to say, okay, when we hit this marker, then we know, checkbox two, we're ready to go. So the marker that we're going for, the financial in the bank marker we're going for, to be able to say, yes, we are ready to launch a church, is we need both internal and external donations to bring us to $50,000 to say, yes, we can launch a church, a second site. And here's why. Because to launch a second site, all of the technology and all the stuff around all needs to be able to be purchased because we can't just, we're not going to use the exact same technology at the same time because that's not possible. So we're going we're gonna to say, okay, it has to be out there and we need that. Also, a brand new church site uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't balance immediately. We all need mothering churches. And so when Promise Church planted the first time, we had a mothering church named Willowdale Pentecostal Church. And Willowdale Pentecostal Church invested dollars to make it so that we didn't run uh, deficits. We didn't run out of money. They, they funded us and carried us. Well, guess what? We are at a point where we are, we are becoming the mothering church. And so to do that, we actually need to put $50,000 in the bank that is dedicated to church planting. And no, it's not all coming from inside of us, um, like out of our pockets, because we give to our church, and that's awesome, and we're so thankful, but it will come. We will make space for it. And we will say, yes, it's going to come from external sources. Yes, it's going to come some from inside sources. We will be doing it. And, And that's part of how we know See, we're not going to just run off and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're ready to go and then put all kinds of jeopardy into the plan that we're making. We're not going to say, oh, yeah, we're going to take on the $32,000 a year expense of renting a school gym, which somebody did just ask the question on Slack, what happens when the school gym is shut down again? Um, Yeah, that is possible, Um, but we are able to... I say gym, but we're able to find other meeting spaces. Gyms will be the predominant one. And then when they shut down, we, we're pushed out. We've, we've adapted before. And, uh, and so it's like, okay, um, we, will, we will make it work. Thank you, Joel, for actually that answer. We'll, we will make it work. So this is, this is what we do. And we, and we step into the gym. We say, okay, so we have the money there to be able to carry those costs. And 
this is one of the metrics of before we go. This sermon series isn't an announcement that next week we're going. This sermon series is a, here is the vision that God has put on us, and here are the metrics that we have to hit to do it. That's what we're focusing on. So that you know that we're not making random pie-in-the-sky ideas. You know there's an objective metric. This is what it is. This is what God will do for us. And I firmly believe that God will allow us to bring in $50,000 that will be dedicated to church planting. And then we will be able to make that continuing work. This is $50,000 in addition to our in-house costs and giving. Yes, absolutely. It is a dedicated. When you give to a charity, there is dedicated giving. You could do general. Most of our giving goes into general. You do general, and that's awesome, and that's not what this sermon's about. But there's a dedicated giving that goes into, it will be called church planting. We don't even have it set up yet. I'm just, we're right at the beginning of exploring the vision and sharing the vision. And, and that's where we're, there's a little bit of pressure off in this. Where it's like, okay, God's calling us to do something. Cool. Let's, let's pray about it. Let's believe for it. Let's get involved in it. Um, but that's what, that's what it is. The other thing that's going to be interesting about this piece is financially, all of our pastoral roles will become part-time. We're going to become bivocational, and some people, some of the staff, will carry two part-time roles that will make them working full-time hours, but they will all be part-time roles. And so that's something that will affect the financial commitment because as we go and we have a site pastor, that site pastor will be drawing a part-time salary. And so that reduces the financial burden on the next plant. And so all of us will have part-time jobs and, uh, sorry, all of, all of us staff, sorry, will have part-time jobs. Maybe, maybe all of us could have part-time jobs, planting churches all over Simcoe and York. That would be cool. So this is, this is where that sustainability comes from. Someone just said, I had my zeal for the box head plan to get an exponential leap with the addition of milestones and metrics. And, and yes, there is actually an exponential leap that happens because as we move from one site to two sites, that's a big one. But then we have two sites funding the third site. And then we have three sites funding the fourth site. And then we have four sites funding the fifth. And it all of a sudden just becomes faster and exponential and bigger. And so there is that. So there's an objective in the financial health that we need. And I've driven that point home well enough. But now I want to talk about why we give. Why we give. The motivation for giving. And, and I want us to be a healthy church. And this is more subjective. Because I can't get into your brain and say, why do you give? I can't sort that out. But what I can do is I can categorize four different motivations that have been used to give inside of the church. And one of them is better than the other three. So the, there are going to be four T's because, well, I never alliterate, but someone told me it's a good idea. There's going to be a tribute, a tax, a tithe, and a ticket. Four ways of thinking about giving that we, that we can, can have a tribute, a tax, a tithe, and a ticket. These four ways are, 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 they've been used in all kinds of different settings. 
and I'm going to explain them, and then we're going to, we're going to take a look at them. A tribute is an external government imposing its fee or duty on a lesser kingdom. We would have this oftentimes in the Age of Empires or ancient days. The lesser or weaker country would be called the vassal state. And they would, there would be a stronger country that would be the, suzer, the suzerain state. The suzerain state would protect them from another enemy and provide resources that were lacking. In some cases, it was a payment, so the suzerain state would simply not attack them. It was a tribute, it was a peace tribute, so that they would not be attacked. It was a protection. A tribute is forced. If you don't pay the, the suzerain state, they would dispossess you of your land if your tribute wasn't paid. There would be consequences. It would leave the vassal state, the lesser state, in a vulnerable position. And it doesn't work. If I pay my tribute, then God must do this. It doesn't work for, for us to think about Christianity giving because, because if we look at our giving as a tribute, first off, a tribute was oftentimes 25 to 30% of all your resources. That was oftentimes what, what nations would set. And so, so that doesn't quite work. And we, would, and we would look at that and we would say, oh, well, God, I have to give you this money. I give to the church because if I don't, God will remove his protection from me. And I've heard that preached, and unfortunately, I don't see that being biblical. It's not, it isn't a biblical model. So someone might tell me that uh, in Numbers 30, 31, it says pay tribute to God, um, to, the, to the Levites. And that is the only time that you see that specific mention. And I'm just going to tell you what's going on here, where, where, the, where the army of Israel has defeated another country's army. And they have brought in a huge bounty, and the bounty is being split up between all the warriors, but Levites aren't warriors. And so it, the command was given to give a tribute to the Levites, so it was all moved out equally. And the word tribute was used, but that isn't what it is. See, Tributes were used in the Old Testament, and Israel used them to pay for protection when God was the one who was offering protection. But in 1 Chronicles 28, 21, it says, For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and to the house of the king of princes, and he gave a tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. And, and we see that, that Israel keeps on losing trust in God and paying tribute to other nations. And, and tribute isn't the right language. It kind of makes us say, if I pay my tribute to God, then God must do this. If I do not pay my tribute to God, then God will dispossess me of all my resources by force. So it continues to not be our works and how much money we give. God grants favor in our life so that no one can boast. It's only through Jesus. So a tribute doesn't work as a strong image for a motivation in church. Someone just add me, just said, is it tribute what we pay to the, to the POC? Well, no, because the POC doesn't stand in and protect us. Um, we, pay, we, model, we model giving um, to the POC um, because that is what we ask people to do. And so we put ourselves under the authority of the POC as a, as a position of, of uh, submission so that we recognize that as we walk, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that there are others who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that can speak into our life. 
Um, the POC isn't a denomination. We're actually an affiliation. I'm not going to get distracted by that, though. Taxation is the other one. Often confused with a tribute, a tax is the... A tax is enforced by the local government. So it's an internal tax. It's something that's demanded. So when I think of Joseph and, and Egypt and what Joseph did when he helped Egypt get through the big famine, and we know, okay, all of Israel came down, but, but he becomes a ruler over Egypt, and he imposes a 20% tax on the people of Egypt of all of their livestock and all of their grain, and they willingly pay the tax because this is what they say, oh, because you saved our life. So we will pay the tax, and we're going to pay this. And, and this, is, this is the model. Taxes are used uh, by government to pay for common infrastructure, such as police, fire, medical, sometimes and sometimes education, um, roads, army, social welfare, and the like. Each culture decides where taxes are best spent. So some people look at, look at giving to the church as a form of taxation. Oh, well, God wants to take a tax from me because he governs me. God's going to impose his tax. And now I have to pay the church tax. So, you know, unfortunate us Christians, we have to pay tax, and then now we also have to pay church tax. And that's all for the benefit of everybody. And, and to a degree, our giving does get used for the benefit of everybody. We pool our resources, and we do. We give out into the community. I don't think any one of us could single-handedly just give $10,000 into the community over a six-month period of time, but Promise Church has done it. So in a sense, there is a... You could say, okay, so taxation maybe, but the problem with that is, is it doesn't work in the paradigm. It, it says... It says that the promised church would then be assigning your dues, your tax dues. You have to pay this amount per year to be a member of promised church. Here's your dues. And that isn't the case. That is not what we do. That is not what motivates our giving. And it isn't where things come from. So a tax isn't quite the right perspective. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus has... That says a thing about taxes. He says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar. That's a tax. Pay your taxes. But it doesn't go to the church. Um, okay, so then there's the third word, which is tithe. And this word inspires a lot of controversy. What is a tithe? What is a tithe about? How do we make this, like, what is this tithe thing? So I went back to biblical text, and I was like, okay, so what is a tithe? Tithe is quite literally a tenth. It's actually what the word means. One-tenth. And where did it come from? Why, what does that mean? Why, why did that ever get established? Why is that even a thing? So Genesis 14, 14 to 20 is a story. And it's the first, it is the first and it is the pinnacle of where tithe comes from. So we need to do honesty to the text. And we have to look at it. And we have to say, okay, so this is what a tithe is. This is the defining moment of a tithe. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, 
born in his house, 318 of them. Pause. We think of Abram as a sojourner that when we think about Abraham, he was the person that heard a promise that he was going to be given the promised land, and he leaves his home, and he moves to uh, the Canaan area. Well, we just think of Abram, and he goes, okay, here's my horse and my donkey, and my wife, Sarah, let's go. And oftentimes when we read the scripture, we think that it was Abram and his wife, and there they go, they just leave Haran, and then they go, and they walk. Just the two of them. Nice tree, nice whatever, whatever's going on. The way the Hebrew world was set up, actually the pre-Hebrew world was set up, was in tribes. The word that we use is called bet-ab. Bet-ab. It means your household. Now, a household wasn't a nuclear family the way that we think of nuclear family. A household was a large group of people that looked to one person as the clan leader. Think Genghis Khan. Right? So, so you've, got, you've got these clan leaders that have multiple tents, and they're nomadic. So they have their tents that they set up, the little, you, you can think of a yurt. And they've got these yurts that they set up, and they've got their, then they put out these picket fences, and they've got sheep over here, and they've got their military men over here, and their people working with iron over here, and we've got, like, you could think back to, like, images on TV that you've seen, because we've gone through this historical fiction phase, and we're actually building these images. This is Abram. He is the Khan of his clan. He is the guy who is in charge, and he has 318 armed men. Okay. Okay, that's impressive. Man, if I've got a guy down the road, and he's got an, a militia of 318 men, I'm, I'm pretty intimidated. He's got all the support that he needs for these 318 men. So, continue with the story. They went and pursued as far as Dan... And he divided his forces against the enemies by night. He and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them to Hobah. That's north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions. And he brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with all of his possessions and the women and the people. Now, back up a little bit. Lot and Abram, Lot was the, was the cousin and they were successively becoming more and more wealthy to the point that their nomadic tribe was too large to handle. It was just too many people. Too many people, too many tents, too much, too much disorganization. When they set up, they didn't know how to set up their, their tent sites anymore. And so you get the blacksmith going, this is where I should be in the camp. And then you've got the baker going, no, 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 I'm here. Back off. And there'd be all these fights, and, and we'd have too much going on, and it would be too much chaos. And so Law and Abram decided, we're going to split. You're going to go this way, and I'm going to go this way. And what happened just before the story is Lot had been lost. He'd been captured by another, another king. And all of his people had gone into slavery. And Abram had heard this, and he was going to go, he's on a rescue mission. And so he, he brought back law, and he brought back all the possessions and all of the women, and he brought back all of the possessions of the people they just conquered. So you can imagine, if all of them have an army of around 300, you could, you could imagine that we're talking about, like, a good thousand people coming back together with all of their resources, all of their stuff. 
And after his return from the defeat of, I'm not even going to try, it's C. I don't, I can't pronounce that. Um, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the most high God. Now that's interesting. Because now we've got a new character that's all of a sudden introduced. And we have God who is just revealing himself to Abram. And all of a sudden we've got this priest who knows this God. The most high God. The one, the creator of the universe. We have a priest seemingly out of nowhere who knows God. That's so cool. God has revealed himself to this priest. And the priest blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here this priest has come in and he said, Blessed be God, blessed are you, here's some bread and some wine. All he did. That's all he did. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Why? Why? What in that text all of a sudden inspires Abram to be like, oh yeah, here you go. We just brought back a thousand people, all of their resources. We just brought back everything. And I'm going to give you a tenth. I'm going to give you a hundred people. I'm going to give you all of their belongings, all of their treasures. You're going to get it all. And all that this priest had done is said, blessed be God most high. And blessed be Abram. That's all he said. What was Abram's motivation to give away a tenth of everything that he had from, from, this, from this piece here that happened? What was Abraham's motivation? Why did he do it? Abraham is extremely rich. Abraham recognized something in Melchizedek. Abraham recognized the action of God. That's it. Abraham recognized the action of God. Melchizedek brought a word from God Most High, whom Abraham had put his faith in. It's a recognition of God's work and an experience of God for Abram. The amount, 10%, is arbitrary as far as I could tell. There's nothing in here that, that there's no pre-existing thing that Abram is following. There's no sense of like, um, oh, well, this is tradition, that, that this is what we do. Nope, there's no tradition. This is a response to God just did something. I recognize the hand of God. And so this is where we see this is where we see something that's really interesting. The motivation of Abraham for giving was not because Melchizedek was a threat. It was not because Melchizedek was offering bread and wine. I mean, we could try that trick. It's not because Melchizedek was taxing him. It's not for any other reason except for we had a God experience. Here was God. And Melchizedek went, 
or sorry, and Abram went, here you go. Here you go. The motivation for giving from Abram is here you go. And what happened when, when Israel made it a formula? Jesus says, Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Look, they tithe. Shouldn't they have been, you know, shouldn't Jesus have just been like, yay, good job, guys, you tithe. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. This isn't an obligatory, I check my box, I tithe. It's not a system. It's not something that we try to work and make happen and manipulate God as though it's a a tax or a tribute. No. The motivation for giving is I give because I experience God. That's it. I give because I experience God. And I know this church gives so much. This church gives so much, and I'm so thankful for it, and this isn't a give more message. This is, this is give because you experience God. Follow Abram's example. Give because you experience God, and that's it. It's not the amount. It's recognizing that God is at work. God's working through this church. God is meeting people. That's the motive for giving. If God, stop, if God stops showing up and the leadership stops honoring God, stop giving. Seriously. If you're not experiencing God, if God isn't showing up here, if the leaders like myself, if we disregard God and the preaching of the word and bringing us into the presence of God, don't give to that. It's not worth it. The last thing I just want to address, and I'm going to go through this very, very quickly, is the ticket. Oh, this is a 21st century thing. We pay ticket prices. We pay subscriptions. We, we go to something because it's entertaining, and we pay our ticket. We go to the Leaf game, never mean. We go to the Leaf game, and we pay for our ticket, and that ticket helps to pay the players. No idea how that math works. So, so we, have, we have these ticket prices, and we go to something, and, and sadly, the church has altered its business model in many cases to present something like a ticket price. You know, if every member gave $45 a week, if they're able to, then they would be paying for the service that they were rendered. Here's what that does to the church, and here's how it breaks the church. If a ticket price is paid, if you are paying a ticket then you are the consumer that has an expectation of what service you are being provided. You also have the authority to say, I don't like the service. I went to Boston Pizza, and this isn't quite a ticket, but I went to Boston Pizza yesterday, and we didn't like the pizza that Aaliyah was served because it was missing toppings. And so we said to the wait, to the wait staff, we said, the The pizza is missing toppings. It isn't what I wanted. It isn't what I'm paying for. And so we put pressure on them to either make it right or give us a discount. When we think about ticket pricing church, when we think about, oh, I come, I give my $20 because that's the ticket for the services that I provided, that that were provided to me by the church, it puts us at the center of church. So this is... 
this is what we do. It's like when you go watch a movie. Your attendance doesn't impact the outcome of the movie whatsoever. If you paid your money, you enjoy it. You sit through it. At the end, you ask this question. What's the question that you ask at the end of a movie? How's the movie? Did you like it? A ticket price makes you a critic. If you come to church with the thought of paying a ticket price, it makes you a critic. So how'd the preacher do today? Well, you know, it wasn't one of his best. He was really nervous. How'd the, how the preacher do today? How did he tickle your ears? How was the singing? Was there enough of it? No, I wish there was more singing. Oh, there was way too much singing. They don't sing enough hymns. It's true. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever that means. We become the critics, and, and sadly, church has become a place where the, where the congregation only has one role, to be the critic. It's the only role they're given in many churches. Oh, that pastor's sermon was on fire. Yep, sure. Churches are failing because we start to put ticket prices on everything. So the tithe is understood by Abram as a response to experiencing God. Someone, someone asked on Slack, for those of us who need guidance on how much God wants us to give, is it wrong to tithe 10%? <laughs> no. It is not wrong to tithe 10%. It is also not legislated to tithe 10%. Even though the word tithe means 10%, it's not legislated to give 10%. That's the whole point. The whole point is, did you recognize that God is doing something? Because if you did... That's why you give. You give because God's doing something. And you don't make it a ticket. Someone else wrote from Matthew 10, 7. Uh, it says, as you go, proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received. Freely give. That's the point. Freely give. And someone else said, with a wrong heart, my, with the wrong heart attitude, my tithe could become a tribute or a tax. But then I remember the provision of God, and every dollar I get will, ever, will always be from him. And it's all, always enough and often amazing. I give from obedience and thankfulness. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you are at work in this church. I thank you that you are building us to be a healthy church where we give because we recognize that you are here meeting with us. And you are working and putting us on mission and involving us in your work that's way beyond the, the 70 years of life that you give us or more because we are blessed. And God, we, we give because there's something eternal about your action, about what you're doing. And so we participate. And I know that every member in this church already does participate. And so that's why this isn't about giving more. But this is about checking our motives. That we recognize you are great. And so God, we give you our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.